You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Before I start each episode, I love sharing quotes and thoughts that I learn during my travels through books. And today's quote is, it's not the differences that divide us. It's our judgments about each other that do. That comes from Margaret J. Wheatley. And today you are listening to episode number 219. And my guest today is Karen Hogan, a longtime community member whose life passion has been in the world of dance. And today Karen shares with us how she had a thought, she followed through with it, and it was to make a difference for the people in Ukraine. She saw and heard on the news the suffering, just as we all do. And then Karen took action. She didn't just talk about it with friends and family while having coffee. She took action, which later also included Karen's husband and her son to help her be involved in taking action as well. Karen shares how she saw firsthand the suffering of the children of Ukraine and how the adults are handling what they are going through with this unnecessary war. And there's a moment where a hug is shared and Karen shares this story with us of a hug. And remember that a hug is so simple and so easy to give to someone. It can make such a major, major impact and make a difference in how they're feeling that day. Outro. To learn more about Karen Hogan and her travels to Ukraine, Karen, thank you for joining me today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. I am very interested and excited to have you here and for you to share the topic that you're going to be talking about today. Yeah, thank you for having me over here. I'm very excited to talk about it as well. There's still a lot happening over there in in Poland and Ukraine, and I think it's actually good timing that I'm on now because it, the news cycles tend to um, cover the situation in Ukraine in waves. And mm. we're kind of in a wave right now where we don't have a lot of information on what is happening with refugees, but there is a lot that is happening right now with refugees. Okay. Well, like I said, I'm very interested to learn. You're the first person I've spoken to who has had an interaction with Ukrainians. But let's start about you to begin with. And where were you born and raised and how did you land mm -hmm. here in, in Jackson? So give us a little background about Karen. Karen, about Karen. Okay. I was born. And your real name raised. is Karen. It's what, what yeah. my real name your is real Karen? name is Karen. This is not some political. <laughs> no, no. I have mixed feelings way. about that, but. I'm sure you do. That's not right for all those real Karens out there. <laughs> Sorry Some to interrupt you. Say, my son will say, Oh, you're such a Karen. And then other people I meet will say, You are so like not anything a Karen. <laughs> but oh gosh. Anyway, hopefully that meme will kind of like dissolve within I like, hope so. Years. <laughs> yeah. But Karen, yeah. So back in the days when Karen was an acceptable 
name for your for your child. I was born in the Midwest in Illinois, in a town called Rockford, Illinois, and born and raised, went to school in Illinois, went to a performing arts high school back in Illinois, where, and that's where I began my love of dance back at Auburn High School. And when it came to graduating from my performing arts high school, I remember sitting in the library, filling out a college application form and saying, I can't, I'm not, I can't major in dance. Like it's just something that you don't, I don't know, just something that was not within my radar, even at even though it was about the only thing I love. So I just just picked architecture because I was kind of good at math. And I don't know, it seemed like kind of creative. So I was like, let's do architecture. So I ended up going to school and getting an architecture degree and working in the field in Chicago for about five years while still dancing. And finally decided it was too much sitting around at a desk. So that was the beginning of my exodus west. And I basically knew that I wanted to go back and get my master's in dance to potentially do something with dance. And I knew that I wanted to be somewhere that had very accessible nature. So I literally looked at a calendar, found the most beautiful place, (laughs) which was Oregon. And I went to University of Oregon in Eugene. I got my master's in dance. And so that was kind of what got me out West. And then after my master's, I worked in architecture again in Eugene and met my first husband who was in Eugene, but had made, had moved to Jackson to ski. And I had graduated from, I had gotten my master's and I was just sort of aimless at the point, at that point. And I thought, I'll go check out Jackson. And I landed in Jackson the same day, got a job with Berlin Architects here in town. Mm-hmm. And I also went by Dancers Workshop to make sure that there was something here in the way of dance because I wasn't going to come here for just architecture or just for the boy. <laughs> so I went and I, and I checked out Dancers Workshop and had an interview with the then artistic director, BJ Reed. And I thought, okay, that's it. There's, there's dance here. I have a job. Let's go. And that was in 1999, January 1st, 1999. I touched down in Jackson and happy, so happy to call it home from now on. It's one of those places I do love to get away from Jackson, but I always love to come home. So that's what brought me here. And I did, and I worked with Berlin Architects until I got a job as marketing director at Dancers Workshop um, when Babs Case took over in 2002, maybe. I'm not sure when it was. So I was a founding member of Contemporary Dance Wyoming, the first professional modern dance company in Wyoming. So I did that and I was marketing director and that was something that I did for about, gosh, I don't know how long I was at DW. Maybe, I don't know, I'm still at DW kind of, I'm just not in the office all the time. You know how it is, like Babs has this way of creating community and creating family and the, the girls that I danced with are still, we, we created this really special bond and we're still family and we will always be family. So I didn't really leave Dancers Workshop. I found a lot at Dancers Workshop, but I met my now husband, Jeff Hogan, and he makes wildlife films. So I left Dancers Workshop to go do some work with him. And we traveled around and made wildlife films until our son Finn was born. 
in 2006. And then I just was full-time mommy for a while before I went back to teaching. And now I have, I fell in love with early childhood dance and fell in love with everything early childhood while at Dancers Workshop. So now I have my own company called Galliope and I travel around to all the preschools that will bring me and I, and I give them an arts integrated movement education program. So that's what I get to do now, which is the best job in the world. <laughs> I, always, I always leave with more energy than when I came in with. And so I feel pretty lucky to have landed that. And so you're going to what grades are you going to the school? Uh, so I go into the preschool. So my wheelhouse are ages two to five. Okay. What fun. So fun. <laughs> and your passion for dance that started has never waned you've ever yeah it sounds like you've always leaned back to it and yeah come back to be in that industry you know i thought i i had to do something a little more sensible a while ago and then i realized the sensible thing to do was to stick with something that is your passion because that's what's actually sustainable so that has been true. I come and go and I, and I do other things in between. I, I like to do a lot of different things. And so um, I sprinkle in some architecture here and there and just had the pleasure of working with Patrick Doherty doing being one of his assistants on the Willow Sculpture at the center. Oh, I've seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I so I've been over to see, be in it, but I've seen it from the road. Oh, it's dreamy. Like you can crawl around or climb in it yeah yeah you can climb in it it's magical it has these little windows it's like a giant fairy house so yeah that was a cool process i'll be working in the high school with some high schoolers just sharing that experience and you know just exploring what we can do with willow we'll be doing that in the next couple of weeks so yeah i do a little bit of this and a little little bit of that but my my heart of hearts is it is hanging out with like three to five-year-olds and dancing and laughing and having fun. I bet. Yeah. And recently, well, you were telling me in the pre-show that you've been to Poland twice now mm -hmm. to work with refugees from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. What prompted you to go the first time? So like probably many others, I was sitting on my couch day after day, starting February 24th, watching the news. And I was in in disbelief, really, that it was happening. And just watching probably way too much news, but seeing just these throngs of women and children crossing the border. And though and it those images stuck with me as I would go to class. And as I was driving to class, I would just have tears running down my face because I I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't understand that that level of evil. I I was picturing, you know, my students being some of those little children that were passing through. And it was, it really affected me and it was unshakable for I would say about three weeks. But really the pivot point was when I was watching the news and I realized that I wasn't really affected by it anymore, I had just kind of gotten like numb to it. And so I was, to quote Pink Floyd, I had become comfortably numb. I didn't like that feeling. In fact, it was worse than, than the feeling of being 
really moved by the refugees. So I just started Googling working and I knew what I would also had identified was a, a childcare crisis that was about to happen with all these children crossing the borders with their mothers, knowing that their mothers, you know, had so much to do. Can you imagine that just dealing with trauma, but then sorting out the getting on with life in a new country and all the things that have to do with this. I, I knew that there were going to be just like large groups of children that needed love. And I knew also that I had the capacity to entertain children in joyful ways and had a sense that that would transfer to different cultures. And so I started Googling working with refugee children in Ukraine and immediately global volunteers came up which is like a volunteer tourism organization out of St. Paul. And as soon as I found that one thing, I just, I remember I was on the couch and I raised my head up and I said, Jeff, you mind if I go to Poland? Mm. And he's like, go for it. And I was like, all right. And that was it. And it was game on from there. And I signed up for a week with Global Volunteers, but I knew that I wanted to go deeper than that. Global Volunteers had a program in eastern Ukraine in a little town called, it's it's spelled S-I-E-D-L-C-E, but it's pronounced something like Sheldush or something. I don't know. Slavic languages are crazy. But so I spent the first week in Poland, in eastern Poland, working with global volunteers. And that was working with a group of about 10 others and a group leader. And we went into the Polish schools and we taught English during the day to Polish children. And then in the evenings, we were staying at this sort of very large country house. In the evening, they would bring displaced families over to the country house and we would create programming for them. So the children would go in one direction and basically the grounds of this manor house were amazing and the kids would just run around and play hide and seek the whole time. And then we did some programming with the mothers and depending on who we saw that day, our programming would change. And I remember the first day a group of mothers came off the bus and I was supposed to teach them a dance class. And because my coordinator said, oh, my gosh, they love to move. They're going to love to dance. Let's let's do a dance class because they've been asking for dance. So they got off the bus and I was ready to teach salsa <laughs> and they were really quiet. They did not make eye contact with any of the volunteers. They did not want to speak to us that it was palpable that there was anger, that there was a lot of anger. And so we were walking towards the room where we do programming. And I said to my, I said to the refugee coordinator, I was like, Barbara, I am not really feeling this. <laughs> like I could not imagine given having, you know, you just feeling into the situation. Mm -hmm. It was not a dance day at all. Mm. So we changed gears really quickly and we got the beads out. And one thing that the mothers just universally liked to do was make these little beaded bracelets. So we got the beads out and ended up just quietly 
I think we put on some background music, but we were all at a table. And now and then the mothers would whisper something to one another and and they would nod, but they were still very quiet, not interested in engaging. And at the end of the session, one of the mothers slid her bracelet over to us for us to see it. And some of the beads we had were the alphabet. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were different letters. And her, I don't think I can say this on the radio, but maybe you can bleep it out. But her bracelet said, fuck Putin. And we learned later that they had gotten bad news about not only something that had happened in the town that was close to them, but also that the Polish government was going to take away their stipend in 30 days. And so they would no longer have, I think, I think the Polish government was giving them like $300 stipend for food or something that was being taken away. So it was just, it was just kind of this like, no good, very bad, terrible day for them. And, Mm -hmm. and so, but then you mean on that individual, on that group of people. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I I'm just going out there that I would think that if you had not read them and actually spoken up and tried to probably teach those folks a salsa dance that day, probably wouldn't have gone over no. very well. I think I think a big part of working with displaced people, something that I've found is is feeling into the situation. Mm-hmm. Because depending on what phase of their journey they are on, they could still be in trauma. And then they also could be in a phase where they're ready to get on with things. They're, they don't want to sit around and do nothing. They're ready to get on and be active and do things that they know will create endorphins or maybe one thing I noticed was that Ukrainian, a lot of Ukrainian women love to dance. There's a really strong folk dance culture over there. So maybe having movement was a way to connect with home. I can't really be sure, but I know that I did a lot of dance classes in at the humanitarian aid camp, and they were very happy to have something that, in their words, made them forget. Hmm. something to yeah to give them those endorphins and create community and forget now you go over there for what you said you signed up for a week with global volunteers Mm -hmm. and you were assigned to actually being in eastern ukraine yeah what i heard you say yeah and then you got into how the stipend from poland was going to be expiring in 30 days with these folks. Mm-hmm. Have you now transitioned over to being from your one week in Ukraine to being in Poland now? No, no it was okay. one week in Eastern Poland. Okay. And that was with global volunteers. Okay. And after that, I knew before I went that I wanted to go for more than a week. And I also knew I wanted a deeper experience with displaced people Mm -hmm. than I had a sense that I was going to get with global volunteers. So before I even went, I went 
down the rabbit hole in Google and tried to find another place where I could be of service to displaced people. And I happened to connect with a board member of Global Empowerment Missions, which is a large not-for-profit that's doing a lot of work in Ukraine and in Poland. And one of their board members put me in touch with the child care director at Modolinska in Warsaw. And Modolinska is the name of the humanitarian aid center where I volunteered for the next two weeks. So I went from Eastern Poland when that gig was done, took a bus into Warsaw, got an Airbnb, and then I would just like Uber back and forth to the aid camp every day and work in the childcare center during the day. And then I had kind of like a pop-up dance studio at night where I would teach adults. And how many, you said Motolinska in, in Warsaw. Mm -hmm. Very curious to know from how long were you there in Warsaw for this first trip? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. And when, and this was in June. Mm -hmm. And when you went there from, and when you left, did the size of the camp grow? Increase? It changed a lot day to day. Okay. So one day we would have, let's say, 15 kids at the daycare center. The next day there would be 45. The next day <clears throat> there might be 23. It changed because while there were residents and there still are who have been at Modolinska since February 24th. It is also, and, and was, was always meant to be just a temporary stopover point mm. where people could get medical aid and food and shelter en route to somewhere else. And so if you were from Ukraine and you didn't have that relative or friend either in Poland or Europe or points beyond, then you could stay at Modolinska. And there are a number of, of guests at Modolinska that have been there since the 24th and it's home. It's home for them right now. Hmm. What was it like interacting? What are some stories maybe mm -hmm. or a story of seeing those kids? How are the mm -hmm. kids? Yeah, the kids. So First off, I'll say kids are very resilient, mm -hmm. especially the very, very young ones. But working with the children was a very different experience for me because they were, as you can imagine, very psychologically tired. And there were some displaced children also at the center. And displaced children is a term used in the, the humanity in the refugee community for children who arrive that don't have a guardian. So I remember there was a little boy, I think he was three or four. It was a stout little boy named Timoshe. And he had somehow gotten onto a bus without a guardian. His caretakers must have just put him on the bus just to get him out of danger. So he was at 
Modolinska, and there would be nonprofits that would come through that would try to place these displaced children into foster homes in Poland. But I remember playing with Timoshe, and I just remember so vividly one day Timoshe came up and gave me a hug, and he just melted into me, and I could feel like his exhaustion mm. and every ounce of his little body, which was a stout little body. I mean, he was he was only three, but he must have weighed like 30 pounds at that point. Anyway, every ounce of him just sunk into me and stayed there for a good like 30 minutes. I was just carrying him around and he was just, just, he just exhausted. He didn't go to sleep. It wasn't tired. He just, I think, and this is something that I found more so than a dance class, oftentimes children just needed that one-on-one -on -one attention with an adult who had the emotional and psychological capacity to just love them, mm. whether that's to hold them or to play a little game with them one-on-one. -on -one. They needed that attention, maybe that security, that adult is there with them and is caring for them. Often what would happen is I would be working with one child and another child would come in and start a fight with that child because they wanted my attention. Mm. So there was a lot of competition for an adult that was willing to just be there and play. Just let them just let them take the lead and play little silly games or hold them or whatever it was. The other thing that the Modolinska is employed, the, the women who work at the child care center are also displaced from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they had the bandwidth to, to do lesson plans and to keep the big groups going, but they didn't have the time or maybe even the psychological capacity at that time to be still and just kind of love on those individual students that just needed it. So I kind of came to think more than anything else that they just, the students just needed an adult, you know, solid figure there that they could lean on. Mm. And in the end, we ended up doing, I was, I, I only had two weeks there. And after the first week, I thought, what, oh, what do they really need? What would they really love? And I came up with the idea of having a talent show because these kids had to, had, they didn't have their end of school celebrations. They didn't have their music classes anymore or their dance classes or their schoolmates. They didn't get all of that stuff. So we did a talent show <laughs> at the end and the whole center ended up getting involved. And it was really, it was really moving because I think for the children, it was a way for them to be seen. And for the adults, it was a way to connect and have some solidarity. There were a lot of nationalistic songs that were sung. A composer from Warsaw got wind of the talent show and she came in and and directed a group of women there who were singers. And they did this beautiful, like, suite of nationalistic Ukrainian songs. And yeah, so it was it was a way to connect, I think. It's beautiful. Thank you for giving a part of yourself to those children and adults and for sharing that. I mm. so appreciate it. Yeah. Karen, I want to hear about 
your next travels over there with your mm -hmm. family, with your husband, husband and son mm -hmm. and what as a family, how that connected you all together. But we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to be back to hear more about your travels to, to help the Ukrainian refugees. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle and join today. Karen, welcome back. Thank you. You just shared your first trip to Ukraine to help with the refugees. Came back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And later, you went back with your husband and son. I did. How was that conversation? Did it take <laughs> much convincing? And when did you go back? That's a great question. And no one's ever asked me that before. But yeah, it did take some convincing. I was originally going to go back by myself. And then I thought, you know, it would be really cool if Finn, who's 15, sophomore at Jackson Hole High School, if he could just come over there with me and just be a part of all this, just have this experience. And it meant taking him out of school for a week. But after talking with his teachers, they were all so supportive of the idea and there were ways for us to weave in his studies with things that we were going to be doing over there. So that was the kicker for me after talking to the teachers and they were all very supportive. I thought, okay, mm. we're going to do this. And so originally it was just Finn and I, and that made Jeff a little nervous, I think, because I think if you if you haven't been over there, it's easy to, you know, imagine disaster scenarios, imagine that bad things could happen. And coincidentally, while we were over there, that was when a couple missiles did come into Poland. And so I think that was in Jeff's mind, like, I don't want you and Finn to go over there in case, you know, World War III just happens to start when you're over there or whatever. So there was that aspect that made Jeff a little bit nervous. But then I also said, I don't know, Jeff, if I were you, I would not want to miss this opportunity with Finn just to see and watch him experience something like this, that inevitably it will change him. Like, you know, and I think it has changed him. Like you don't, you don't, come back the same person as you were before you left when you do work like this. And so that was kind of the kicker because he was he was like, I can't I can't go now. I'm right in the middle of this cougar project. He's in the middle of a cougar film and the winter is where all the stuff happens. And so his cats were coming back and he was nervous that he was going to 
going to miss something extraordinary over there. And so, but anyway, he decided that, yeah, he can't miss this opportunity. So we all three went together, which was amazing and very different from my first experience because we did different things too. I wasn't there just focused only on the childcare center. We actually went kind of as a filmmaking family to go and offer a filmmaking class for Ukrainian teenagers called Sharing Your Story. Hmm. And so we all went over there. I was going to teach dance in addition, but Jeff and Finn, their work was with this filmmaking class. So they had connections with the Ukrainian teenager through a translator, and I did too. I was part of it, but I wasn't as involved not so many hours at the center. And we also, Jeff or Finn hadn't been to Europe before. So we had to see some of the extraordinary things that Warsaw has to offer, like World War II museums, like nobody's business. I don't know if you know, but 84% of Warsaw was bombed in World War II. And they have extraordinary World War II museums over in Warsaw. So we did some historical stuff with Finn too, looking at some of the museums and stuff. But do you go to a concentration camp? You know, we were going to go to Auschwitz, but in the end, we didn't really have time. So we didn't. We wanted to spend, we were five days of the 10 days, we were, I would say, nine days at Modolinska for a good chunk of that. So we took one afternoon and did museums. But other than that, we were at the center. And so they, we're teaching teenagers about filmmaking, sharing their stories. And what were some of the stories? We have yet to find that out. <laughs> really? Well, the class went a little differently than we had thought it would go. Uh -huh. So we, we had a Ukrainian teenage translator, which come to find out he was kind of more interested in hanging out with the other teens than he wasn't really translating. So it was pretty, it was really challenging to, and probably challenging for a number of reasons, but the, the language barrier was a big challenge in its own. And then the giant like very well-intended task of being able to teach them filmmaking and storytelling and then personalize it in a way where where they would be able to tell their own story ended up being very difficult because we had to kind of back up and talk about storytelling in general but it was kind of difficult to do because of the language barrier so we tried to show by example and find short films that told a story with just images. And in the end, what we ended up doing was giving them, like in the end, Finn saved the day. And he was like, he had a media arts class and they had a script that they had put together on how to do a short film. And in the end, Finn was like, why don't we just give them a script? He's like, I have a script that I did from my media arts class. And Jeff and I were like, oh my God, thank God, yes. Just do a and so actually Finn taught that class the next day and gave them the script and just having something really tangible for them to sink their teeth into. It was just like step one, do this, step two, do this, step two, step three, do this. And it had like, you know, you could be creative. It was just like a 
a structure that you could be creative around and that saved the day. And they, they, they took it from there and, and ran with it. And we got one, I would say of the 15 teens, we got one that like really, really took that idea and ran with it and, and made a fun little short film. The other thing is we came with, I think we raised money to get 10 iPhone 8s and you could, we gave away the phones at the, at the end of the, of the class. And I'm not sure if they knew that at registration or, or not. So the question remains, how many were there for the phones and how many were there for the class? <laughs> but, but Vitali, he, he made a, he made a great film and he was really interested and engaged. And so in the end, we, Jeff and I thought, okay, well, if we got one that, you know, like kind of maybe piqued some interest in filmmaking, then we'll call that a success. But what did happen was there's a, a school that's been started in Modolinska and the director approached us, I think the Wednesday of the class, the class started on Monday. And she said she has three families that have really compelling stories. And would she, would we be interested in helping her and the school make a short film about those families just to support them. And of course, we jumped at that chance and spent the rest of our time, in addition to the film class, doing interviews with the children of the families and the parents, the, the mothers. And so we will, we're looking for an editor, by the way, if anyone wants to do this kind of work, we need an editor. We have a lot of footage from interviews and we're waiting for some film footage that they will shoot. The teachers will shoot there at the at Modolinska at the aid camp of just what their life daily lives are like. And also footage from that they brought with them footage from home. And so we will have a short film eventually when we That's find cool. an editor. Yeah. That's I'm sure there's somebody in this town or with your husband's network that you'll find. I hope so. To do that. Yeah. It's Maybe really, the it's, high school students would be willing yeah. to do a project. Yeah. That's a great idea, actually. I should reach out to the high school and see, or my son, for that matter. He's in media arts. And yeah, I would like to work with an editor who can also collaborate, you know, as a storyteller, because we have like all these disparate ideas swimming around from these three different families and how to weave them together to make a compelling short film is going to be a really fun project, I think. Hmm. What a remarkable experience for, for your entire family mm. to be there together. And I, I'm sure that your husband now is grateful that he found the way to make it there so he could experience be there with you and Finn. Mm -hmm. um, you you mentioned somebody's name during the break, Elena. Elena, yes. Tell Elena. me. Tell us about Elena. Elena, oh, I just got to chill. So I met Elena on my first tour, let's say, to Warsaw, and she, Elena works in the child care center. She's an artist, and she was an art teacher back in Ukraine, and Elena does art with the kids all day. And Elena's story is, I think it was late March or early April, a missile landed in her front yard, but it did not explode. And that was her cue after spending numerous hours in the basement 
praying for hours on end. Finally, when they went outside and they saw, and she has a picture of it, it's this giant, like three foot bomb that's just in her front yard, intact, fully intact. Mm. So that was what made her get on the bus the next day. And she brought her grandson Dima with her and her mother. And they took the bus to Warsaw and because they have a nephew in Warsaw that they stayed with. But Elena's husband, Sergei, is still... So they they live in a small village called Zalote. And Zalote is just below Severodonetsk, which is in the Luhansk region, which is part of the Donbass. So I would say a majority of the displaced people that I saw at the camp were from the east, from the Donbass or from areas that were, you know, to the east of the Dnipro River. They got to Warsaw, but yet Sergei, her husband, had to stay behind because his 83-year-old mother refused to leave. And she said she's just, she's going to die in her house. That's all there is to it. Like, she's not going anywhere. She's going to die in her house. So we got word. It was my last day in Warsaw. And Elena and I were making preparations for the talent show. And she got word that Sergei was alive. So that was great news because Zelote is now under Rocky under Russian occupation. So Sergei and his mother have not had any type of power or water or light since the beginning of the conflict. And in the summer, pretty manageable. You know, they could still sleep at home. And I think there was there were aid there were aid organizations where he would walk to go get his food and bring it back to his mother. But all communications had been cut off. And so now Elena can get sporadic news from Sergei and his mother through a phone call from her daughter who's in Russia. So her daughter will call Sergei once a week from Russia. And Elena will just listen on, listen in to the phone call. And while that was difficult in the summer it was sustainable and i i i keep checking and elena doesn't like to talk about everything that's going on because she just doesn't know from day to day what's going on and i keep checking Zolo, the weather for zelote and i see like today there was a low of 19 a high of 35 and i know that they don't have a fireplace in their village where they're staying i mean there's nothing grandma just sits in a chair with coats and blankets on. And Elena, I just, in fact, 10 minutes before our time here, Elena just texted me and she said, I'm so relieved because Sergei's mother had finally agreed to go move into the farmhouse, which had been destroyed, is partially destroyed from the war. The windows were blown out and really not livable. But what Sergei had done was he had just taken the covering. They have a beautiful farm and garden there. And he had taken like, you know how there's you put that covering over your plants to to keep the weeds down. Mm -hmm. He had just taken that and fixed the windows and like constructed new window openings and put that over the window openings 
and got and fixed the stove enough where it's working and finally, finally, finally convinced his mother to move over to the farmhouse where he can now have heat to heat the stoves. And he's using the trees that have been exploded through missiles for firewood and the broken fence that has been destroyed through fighting for firewood. So at least now they have heat. He had been walking, I think it was five kilometers from his mother's house to this farmhouse that I speak of. He would build a fire, heat food for her, walk the food back, they would eat, and then he would go and walk and get his water, which I imagine is from a humanitarian aid situation there, and walk that back. So it was it was some tough times of not only living in what is now below zero temperatures, but spending your whole day walking just to build a fire to heat food. And it remains that they are in Donbass, where the future of that is uncertain, but it is unsafe to just go walk around right now. It's it's Russian occupied. So Elena is she she's an artist and every day she comes home from Warsaw to her tiny little apartment that we got to visit. And she paints these shopping bags. And depending on how good or bad the news is, is how big of a canvas she uses. So the worst news and the the bigger canvas she has. So she just paints until she can't even stand up anymore and falls into bed. But I just took a whole suitcase full of her paintings on shopping bags back with me. And we just sold almost all of them at the art fair last weekend. And so all that money will go back to her so that when I was with Elena, she would just only talk about her garden. She's just an avid gardener and she would just, every plant she would pass, she was, she would not, she would close her eyes and shake her head and say my garden. So this money will go help rebuild her garden, get her some new fruit trees and rebuild her house too, hopefully. So when she gets back, I'm definitely going to be sitting in, in Elena's garden in Ukraine, drinking tea with her when all of this is over. <laughs> yeah. We wish it would be over soon. Yes, we do. Not- and, and I have to add that it has given me, and by extension, I also think my family, who has just been around Ukrainian women in particular, who have such a sense of resilience and strength. Like I am constantly just in awe of what millions of families are going through, but yet the resiliency that these women have, they're there to fight in any way they can. If they're in Warsaw, they're fighting in the way they can for Ukraine. If many of them said if they didn't have children who they didn't want to experience the war, they would be back fighting. It's just for the children their children who they don't want to experience war. That's the only reason that they are in Poland. And this one woman, very strong woman, mother, I can't remember her name right now, but her daughter's Masha. And she said, there's a saying in Ukraine. And she said, you can, you can bomb us. You can cut our lights you can leave us in darkness, but it's only temporary. 
we will always have that light and that power in our heart. You can never break us. And But they say, but rush for Russia, you will never have light ever again. Mm. So mm. that was a really powerful saying. And I, I don't know what it is about the Ukrainians, but they fix things so fast. You know, like their power grids are bombed. It was like two hours later, the whole grid is up in service again. They're extremely resilient, extremely resourceful community of humans. Well, you've, Karen, you've shared so much today, and I'm grateful for the time that you spent over in Ukraine and to share your experience and the people, the stories of some of the people that you met. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so grateful that I get to share this experience and and keep the plight of these millions of families kind of in our bandwidth these days because there was a lot of coverage of it at the beginning of the war. And I know now that winter started, even in the, from the space from we were there, we went from an estimation of 800,000 new, new refugees crossing the border into Poland to 1.5 million. So it doubled the expectations of movement from Ukraine into Poland had doubled in the course of 10 days. Mm. So it's uh, it's still a big issue and so I'm I'm very grateful and honored to have this opportunity to speak with you and to share that with the Jackson community. If people want to connect with you and learn more about how they could organize going over to Ukraine or Poland or help mm-hmm. is is there a way that they could connect with you an email address? Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to share my email. My email, it's my maiden name. So it's forcekaren at gmail. And I will spell that. It's F as in Frank, O, R, S as in Sam, S as in Sam. So two S's. And then Karen, K-A-R-E-N at gmail. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. Thank you. Well, send our love and thoughts to Elena. It sounds like you too communicate with frequency we do and i wish you all the best and for the your new friends over in ukraine thank you so much all the best and and safety thank you you're welcome happy holidays happy holidays to learn more about karen hogan and her travels to help refugees of this ukrainian war visit the jackson hole connection episode number 219 i appreciate everybody who tunes in each week Get out there and share this podcast. I know it's content that would be helpful and beneficial to other people to listen to as well. My wife and my boys who always support me. And of course, Michael Morey, who does the editing and marketing for every episode. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Cheers to next week when I see you right back here for another episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.